Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Brian, welcome to the Big Van Theory. Thanks, Bob. Um, so, yeah, I've been following you on Twitter for quite a while now. You, Anyone who's a student should definitely follow you because you're full of brilliant nuggets of information. Um, can you just briefly tell us a bit about your background? Because you worked at some very cool wineries um, and then tell us kind of what you're doing now. I My first real winemaking job was in the Hunger Hill in the Hunter Valley where the prerequisite to get into Charles Sturt University Rosemount was like the Sandhurst Australian winemaking and, and Charles Sturt was sort of like Point Cook, you know, sort of there was a difference. And uh, I worked for a guy called Brian Crozer and a fellow called Tony Jordan. Um, and I worked for him uh, and another guy called Robert Hesketh and they set up a consulting company and I worked for them for about a year or so. And uh, did a vintage at Petaluma, worked up in the Riverland with probably the first or second tank press in Australia, uh, doing juice extraction and so on. And uh, I had to go back to uni to finish off. I found it almost impossible to complete my studies without, uh, you know, uh, you know, part-time, because I'd been through that uh, when, I was, uh, when I studied metallurgy in Newcastle, where I grew up. Um, after I finished my, my course, I went to America to run a mobile bottling line back in the day. Um, Came back, and then I was lucky enough to get a job at Sepults in Great Western and uh, uh, worked with a guy called Warren Randall. Uh, we became very good friends, very, very competitive, I must say, but that's the nature of both of us, I suppose. And uh, I, Warren was the sparkling winemaker, and my job was the location winemaker and also in charge of, uh, well, responsible for white wines in that group. Anyway... Uh, I thought I was uh, I was full of myself about how good I was, and I got uh, tapped on the shoulder to go and run a boutique winery in the Yarra Valley, and I started to make Pinot Noir, uh, which was interesting, uh, at a place called St Hubert's. Stayed there five years. Uh, came to Western Australia uh, through various contacts, and I was chief winemaker at Evans and Tate, a family company. Stayed there eight years, and then I'd had enough. I was burnt out, and uh, my my wife saw a job uh, in uh, in the paper. It was the chief winemaker Southern Italy, and it was uh, Casa Vinicola Calatrazi, which was doing a joint venture with Hardy UK. And uh, uh, so, anyway, I got the job, and I went over there and worked for Maurizio Mitteke, and uh, uh, and they had a brand in the UK called Distinto, which was went very well initially, but. Uh, Typically Southern Italian, Maurizio, bless his, he's, he died actually, he was a lovely bloke. He sort of promised the earth but couldn't deliver. Um, and I went there just as it was crashing around. <laughs> and uh, I basically stayed there with my wife and I spent five years, uh, five years in, uh, in Sicily and uh, we had three wineries. Uh, we had a winery in Puglia. And we also had a, an operation in, in Tunisia, Tunisia, and I used to spend my time fitting between those three places. Um, Maurizio was an interesting guy. 
you know, working for Maurizio was like being in the middle of a Graham Green novel. It was, you know, it's, <laughs> it was always a project, you know. It was a project in Malta. We had a project in Malta. We sort of half got going on that. Then there was a project in Turkey. Turkey. Then, then uh, Maurizio said, you're going to Georgia. I said, no, I'm not going to Georgia. Uh, anyway, you know, I, I, I stayed there five years and it, it was – it was we had really good successes there. We did really well in uh, you know within the Italian show system and really got some good wines on the map uh, uh, from Sicily. Uh, and I came back to Western Australia and I've been working with the same guy uh, for now for about twenty years, uh, at least or fifteen years or so. And I do a bit of consulting and I have my own label within uh, Naked Wines as well, which is going fairly well. Um, so. I'm sort of a bit of a free agent these days. I don't do so much operational winemaking because, it, you know, at, at 69, it's relentless. You know, it's, it's relentless and, you know, you, you just cannot keep at it, you know. Um, you just can't. And uh, so I have people to cover for me. So most of my time is spent on the, uh, the stratospheric um, mission of wine design. That's sort of what I do now and... Make the blends right, and so on, and so on. And that's you know that, that's enough for me. That's fine. Um, so on Twitter, I suppose I can bring forward a lot of things, of past experiences, and so on. I, I suppose the point about all those years of winemaking is that you know I think some people learn whatever their job skill is in the first four weeks, and I've always found in winemaking uh, that you never stop learning. If you're a good winemaker, you're always very observant. And, uh, you know, you can see things. And often, quite often winemakers' anecdotes uh, tend to ha have some, you know, uh, tend to have some factual basis. Um, uh, so there's a bit of a, a sort of misunderstanding about how wineries work. And Crozer was always very hot on, for example, one, a good example would be using sulfur dioxide in, in wine or grapes. That you you use the minimum possible to achieve the end you need to get to. Um, you know, sulphur is is not the best thing to add, um, and and a lot of very big wineries try and minimise it altogether. I think you'd be quite surprised how they do things these days. Um, you know, you, you try and minimise it. You don't want to use too much, and therefore the the standard techniques, for example, of in Australia, where probably you know, 99% of grapes are, are machine harvested. You, you try and get not, or you do. Um, you you minimise the distance of transportation uh, between the grapes and the winery. Uh, you, uh, you know, you minimise the maceration in general and you avoid adding more than sufficient sulphur to do the job at hand. Um, and it, it, it is... It is an important additive. You, you really, it's very hard to get around unless you really set up to do it in a certain way. You can do it, uh, and we do it with sort of hand-picked fruit that's in perfect condition. And you, you may, for example, be making a you know a whole bunch of fresh chardonnay, and uh, and you can do it in that way. Um, and as much as anything, if you don't add sulphur, then you've got much more chance of actually getting uh, wild yeasts or in, you know uh, indigenous yeasts or whatever you want to call them. To actually ferment the wine you're trying to trying to ferment. 
So in, in terms of in terms of yeasts, like as I remember, there was a one particular tweet of yours that really made me chuckle a while back, and it was um, I can't remember which what yeast it was, but you described it as a dog of a yeast, um, and it. <laughs> Um, but so what what's a good yeast for you <laughs> like I mean what do, how, do you have go-to yeast do you use like x5 for some for Sauvignon and uh, something else for another one or how do you how do you choose a good yeast well it's a great it's a great question mate actually because some people view yeast as something to get the job done that it's reliable that it ferments to dryness as necessary and you know gets the wine to to completion Um other people say, oh, let's use this, let's use that, because you, you get all these interesting characters and they have some, you know, activity of splitting, splitting these, uh, you know, aromatic compounds off, off, off glucose and so on. Um, uh, generally, those sorts of things, in my experience, are sort of short-lived in the bottle. But that may not be a problem if you want a rapid turnover. And I, I don't want to centre on Brian Crozer, but back in the day, Crozer... Crozer sort of, uh, I might say, caused a bit of revolution in white wine making in Australia. And, it, uh, you know, it's always been drummed into me about the protection of fruit in a wine. I mean, fruit is, is, is the thing that drives wines, flavour, fruit flavour. And so Crozer's approach to making delicate and aromatic wines, and you could think back in the, in the early 80s, uh, Riesling was the number one uh, table wine by sales in Australia by a long way before Chardonnay. And so Crozer set out to make some uh, some styles of Riesling which were, which were very delicate and he uh, he used clarified juice. Now when you use clarified juice uh, you end up in all sorts of issues in trying to make the thing ferment properly. Um, and the Crozer isolated, I think R2 came from an ice, was isolated from when Len Evans uh, was running that shadow in in, uh, in sort of, uh, I forget the name of it now, but he went over. I think, I'm sure Crozer brought it back with him. And anyway, R2 uh, was incredibly vigorous, uh, dangerously vigorous if you didn't do it right and you could, you know, you could turn the wine into a sort of soup of McCaptain and so on and so on. Yet, on the other side of it, if you did it right, it was a, 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 a you know, a fantastic use. But it was, it was, uh, you had to be very careful with it. Now, these days, and back then, by the way, Bob, uh, uh, you know, dried yeast, which a lot of winemakers, well, most winemakers would be using on the smaller scale because it's good. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, the, the people that make uh, uh, yeasts uh, commercially have all sorts of incredible technology now. You know, they have some of the best, uh, you know, biochemists and uh, uh, biologists to, uh, cellular biologists to, to isolate and, you know, and, and select these things, which can give you the, you know, the characters even emulating indigenous yeasts. So um, you buy it in a packet and you rehydrate it and you put it in the wine and it ferments. Now, back in my day, and probably still applies now to very large wineries, everything was, everything was uh, uh, grown up from slope, from, a, from an agar slope in a bottle. And you took it through various stages, 200 mils, 20, 20 litres, uh, and then into 400 litres, and then you'd, you'd scale it up and uh, you'd, you'd see, you know, multiple ferments around the winery with these scaled up, uh, you know, while this, you know, with a, with, you know, a fully trained microbiologist. 
And when you when you ferment wines, uh, juices that are clarified, uh, it's much harder and much more difficult. It's it's very tricky. It's it's uh, it's fun. So, so what do you do then? I mean, do you do you generally add yeast nutrients with clarified stuff? Is there a much of a benefit of using clarified juices? Um, why would you? Um, I, I don't think now so much because uh, I think uh, I mean I'm talking clarified, clarified back in the day, which the the, the, the juices were were literally filtered, literally filtered, uh, and so they were, you know I mean you could see to the bottom of the tank of the things. I mean they were bright. Um, but these days, there's much more latitude, uh, especially with things like Chardonnay, uh, with Sauvignon Blanc, that uh, some level of solids, and therefore, uh, you know, dissolved nutrients, and probably, uh, you know, uh, how would you call it, uh, 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 places where yeast can can attach themselves to some, you know, to something, um, uh, uh, as is much more acceptable stylistically. Uh, you know, and you've got machines that can clarify juices as necessary. You can, you can literally dial it up where you want it to be. Um, so there's, there's less of a compulsion to do it and there's really less reason to do it these days. And some people probably as a safety measure as much as anything use maybe very light solids in the juice just to ensure that you, uh, you know, you, you get the thing through to dryness. If you're using nutrients, people use, uh, you know, add uh, nitrogen through diamine phosphate or other sorts of uh, other sorts of nutrient additions. A lot of them are sort of proprietary. I'm not sure how efficacious they are, but the main thing with ferments is to make sure you get or establish a proper viable number of cells uh, of viable yeast to start with. That's the crucial thing, uh, and make sure you get sufficient cell numbers in a ferment. So that you have sufficient, let's say, biomass there to ferment the thing dry. Um, if you don't get that, what happens is that you start to see alcohol inhibition, and the thing you can predict it—it it just simply won't ferment dry because there's simply not enough of those little devils in there fermenting away to try, you know, to convert all the all all the sugar into alcohol. They just can't do it. So what do you do when you get a stuck ferment? Do you just add more yeast or chill it down and heat it up again? What do you, what's your go-to method to help? The first thing is, is to uh, probably, uh, well, most people, what they do is they plot the ferment out on graph paper or something like that. It might be on a computer screen, whatever. And generally, you can sort of see by the activity uh, and the rate of fermentation as it takes off whether you've got whether you have sufficient viability. If it does stick, um, the first thing you may look at would be the level of alcohol in the wine to see if that it's not over the top and then you might have to re-blend it or whatever. Um, and then reseed it. You go through a reseeding process of building up a, another culture of with massive yeast counts that you whack into it and generally that gets you through. There's there's plenty of re-fermentation strategies around that you can use, or the good old one is blended away if you need to, um, if you're in that lucky position. You know, uh, with the red wine, of course, it's crucial that you try and get it dry. With whites, uh, again, if you can blend it away into something else, all the better. If you can't, well, re-fermentation strategy, building up a new uh, culture, uh, re-inoculating, uh, watching the the rate of sugar consumption, blah blah blah. Um, 
you, you, can, you can generally get them through. Some are, some just won't. Uh, I don't know why, but um, I'm not a I'm not a, uh, a, a, bio, a microbiologist. But you generally, if you get it right, that's a, you know low free sulfur in the initial juice or zero if you can, um, and then the right level of inoculation and the right number of viable cells uh, in the ferment uh, should see you through. And of course, with uh, with turbid uh, juice. Uh, there's usually not so much of a problem at all. Um, you know, if you've got a, a very sweet juice or with high potential alcohol, uh, then, you know, you can have a problem. Answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what, um, what kind of processing aids do you use on a standard basis? Do you use um, pectinases, any other enzymes? Um, what, what kind of adjustments do you make? As I saw it, you also posted something about um, uh, people acidifying and then deacidifying, like to, which seemed like like a lot of faff. I, I, and I'm not a fan of faff, but uh, <laughs> what kind of adjustments do you make? What kind of um, additives do you put into your wines to, to get them through? Well, okay. Um, well, uh, most people in Australia would be using tartaric acid to adjust uh, their red wines, I'm sure. Um, I'm not sure so much. I'm not really boiled up these days on iron exchange, whether people use that as much as they did. I think it's banned in the EU, so you can't use it on wine you want to export to the European Union. Um, but it is a very good technique. It really is. Uh, but anyway, people don't like it, whatever. Um, tartaric acid would be the number one thing. Interestingly, in Margaret River, with white wines in Margaret River, you tend not to need them. Uh, you, you don't tend to need them, and there's been a, a bit of a trend to pick greener. Uh, so usually the acidities are, are pretty good. Maybe you would add some acid to the pressings uh, to get them into balance. Uh, and as far as other things, um, pectinases for, for clarification. Well, the, the interesting thing now in wine processing, which has really taken off in in many, many, many small wineries is just a simple uh, physical process called the uh, froth flotation where you, you just simply purge the juice with uh, nitrogen under some counter pressure uh, through, a, through a, 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 a very fine uh, steel sinter uh, with these micro bubbles and, and it simply allows the froth to rise. You actually get all the solids to the top and you, you, you rack off the clear juice underneath. And you can use pectinases, but uh, a lot of people now use nothing. They, simply the process works pretty well by itself. Uh, you can, it's, it, it's simply a mechanical process, which is it's used in other industries like coal washers where you inject or metal uh, uh, separations of very fine particles, you use froth flotation. It's, it's quite common. Um, uh, it's a common technique in, in sort of minerals and coal processing, and we use it now in winemaking. In fact, there's one tweet I put up of, uh, there's, a, there's a system called continuous flotation rather than batch-wise. Batch-wise flotation, you just simply pump the tank over and over for an hour or so, inject nitrogen, leave the tank for 12 hours, and all the rubbish floats to the top. Um, it's sort of like scum on the soup, I don't know, but it, it works. It's incredibly effective. And you just rack away the clear juice underneath it. it it's really quite a, a good system. It saves you energy, saves you time, saves you labour, and so on and so on. And most importantly, it saves you capacity when you're talking about throughput in a winery. 
the quicker you can get the wines into fermentation and out of settling, the, the, the more efficiently you're using capacity, which is a big thing during vintage. Uh, as I was, I was saying, in northern Italy, uh, people use uh, – I, I put up a tweet of some people using a, fossil, a continuous flotation where they have like a, a big tank with these big sweeping arms that, 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 that sweeps off the, you know, the grape solids and the clear juice runs away. And, you know, they love it because they can just, just run it, run it, run it. And their biggest issue there is they're always feeding this thing. It's, it's, it's an interesting system. Um, so obviously you add sulfur dioxide to, for protection of juice against oxidation, um, also uh, microbial issues. Uh, that that that's especially true in, in red wines as well, where you you're trying to avoid any issues with Britannomyces uh, or any other nasty things that might take a foothold. Tartaric uh, uh, acid to get the wine into balance and adjust the pH. Clarification of white juices, um, and really, really, to be really honest, not much else in there, really. Uh, people then might look towards the end of the wine's uh, life when it's ready for bottling, might look at some fining agents if they think they need them. Um, most of those would fall into the range of things like, uh, uh, you know, PVP maybe for whites. Uh, uh, Isinglass, which is a, a fish gut protein. Um, there are some vegetable proteins that people use now for, uh, for for wines that are vegan. That's a very big thing now in Australia, and most people want to have vegan on the label by by you know removing anything that could be added to the wine, or, which is of animal origin, such as gelatin. Uh, you know, gen generally beyond that, you know, I'd. I, in, in all my experience, you know, the, 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 more, the more troubles you have with the grapes is the bigger the need to, to make, to, 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 you know, to make interventions. So the, the real focus goes on making sure that the grapes in the first place are as good as you can get. But there's always going to be a distribution. There's always going to be 5% of what you're dealing with is going to be difficult. Uh, and there's always going to be 5% that you do nothing to make it and it turns out great. And in the middle, there's that, that great bell curve of stuff, you know, that you have to deal with. But to, to be really honest, in my experience, uh, uh, and I'm just trying to, you know, you put me on the spot here, just thinking back over the last minute, <laughs> and not, not, not a real lot of stuff at all, really. Uh, not, you know, these finding agents and all those things are expensive. Sure. Especially PVPP, isn't it? I, that's one of, the, one of the worst, I hope. It is very expensive, Yes. Well, it's one of the best and one of the worst. I mean, it's <laughs> the bloody stuff. <laughs> it works really well. Um, it doesn't dissolve in the wine. Has no, you know, it's it's not soluble. Um, breweries use it for beer treatments, um, and they recover it and treat it and reuse it because they use so much of it, like tons of the stuff. Um, in winemaking, you might add to a, to a white wine maybe fifty parts per million. That's that's point. 0.05 grams in a liter that's like a match head in a liter of wine you know it's, it's nothing but it just brightens up the color and so on uh, you know it's an extremely effective uh, finding agent but it's probably one of the most preferred ones by a lot of winemakers uh, you know if you're old school you'd be piling in gelatin and carbon and god knows what else so uh, there's a couple of questions i'll follow up from that so 
I mean, you've worked on the um, well, virtually every level of of winemaking. But when you're dealing with big bulk harvests, how do you ensure that you're getting the best ripeness and consistent grapes? Because that's too big an area to check it that much. What kind of systems you put in place to check that all the grapes are, you know, the right level and right quality? And how do you deal with them if they're not? Well, I was in Margaret River last week and I put up a picture, I think, of the two viticultures and uh, Severin, the winemaker, Murray and Dave. I think there's a picture of us. Um, and uh, we'd been in the vineyards for most of the day and we'd been driving around looking at the blocks, you know. And we, uh, I think after a certain amount of time, you can sort of look at a you know, you can walk down a few rows and you get a pretty uh, good idea of what the fruit's about, you know, whether it's going to make A, B or C grade or whatever, however you want to, uh, you know, score it. You know, I mean, probably Treasury have multiple levels of scoring or grading or whatever. You know, our scoring system is like three marks on a stump with a piece of chalk almost, but it's, uh, um, you, you know, you walk down the rows, you have a look at the fruit, uh, and especially in things like Margaret River, you'd be looking to see, for example, Sauvignon Blanc, whether the fruit was a little bit too exposed. Uh, you don't want that. Um, you're looking for disease. And after a couple of years, there's a hierarchy of quality levels that you get in the winery. So, you know, block six, you know, you know the, WAN, the WON block that we deal with, they all have very esoteric names. I don't know where they come from, but... A particular block of semolin, we we've got a fair idea of when it needs to come off, um, and so on and so on. So, what you, you're really looking for, seeing if the block is performing to its expectations. You're looking for disease, uh, and the ultimate decision, or the the first single most important decision that a winemaker makes is when to pick. That's a winemaking decision, not a viticultural decision. That's when, the, as soon as those grapes fall off the vine, they become your responsibility from then on in. So uh, we sample heavily. Uh, we have people in the vineyards looking for, um, uh, you know, pests and diseases. They walk up and down. Uh, they report, see how many uh, snakes they can find, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh and, and, you know, report back. And we don't have drones. We don't have uh, infrared vision. We don't have any of that. But that'll come. All those things will come. But at the moment, it's good old legwork. You know, you drive along, you get out of the car, you walk up a couple of rows, you get back in the car, you go to the other end of the block, which you know is more vigorous, you have a look at that, then you start making calls about when you're going to pick. And, and I'm sure that the, I'm sure it would be much the same in very, very large operations. They have great quality officers or liaison officers who would uh, be very clear about, uh, you know, their specifications and, and that would be communicated to the grower and the grower would try and achieve those specifications and they would have probably an incredibly good uh, system of logging and, and automation and the expectation of when the and be, there'd be a chain of, uh, how would you say, um, there'd be a chain of tracing that should go back almost to the bunch sort of thing. Uh, so that's how we do it. And most people are the same, Bob. Most people know their vineyards. They know how they perform. Uh, they see from year to year the changes. 
uh, one thing that we do do these days, we're starting to look into uh, digital flagging of various parts of the winery. So when the machine comes through, we swap it to another bin or whatever, because no matter how consistent you think uh, that fruit is or that vineyard is, even if it's dead flat and it looks all the same, it isn't. And once you start, you know, do things like using a drone or getting in the air with a helicopter or whatever, you can start to see the differences and, uh, you know, plan, plan as necessary. But on some cases, you don't worry because it's, you know, it's a block of fruit. You know it's all going to go to one destination, so there's simply no point. The only point then is to make sure that you, you know, that nothing is, is turned into sultanas on one end of the vineyard and not the other. When, when grapes come into a winery, you can't improve it. You can't improve the fruit that comes in. No winemaker on this earth can make grapes come out better than the, you know, the, the level of quality that, that's ingrained in them. All you can do is try and protect it and see what comes out the other end. So grapes that come in as A grade, it's your job to make sure the wine comes out as A grade, the grapes go in at B grade, comes out as B grade. Um, unfortunately, the only way it can go is downhill. Um, you know, and your job, if you're good at it, is to make sure they come out the right way and then try, if you have blending logistics, to try and not compromise your best wines by having to, let's say, overblend it with material that is, you know, is not as good. That, that, that's, that's, a, that's a sort of fundamental thing you do in the winery. Uh, you, you, you can't add information. You, you can't add something that's not there. You can't add more flavour, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that, that's, that's how I'd answer the question. I hope that Yeah, that yeah absolutely. Sense. So well, that leads on to one, another one that you, I've seen you, you comment on. Like, do you think transparency is an issue in the wine trade? So obviously you mentioned things like veganism and wanting to know what fining products go in. I think things like organic labelling isn't necessarily very helpful, as I, loads of my friends think that organic means no chemicals or pesticides were used when that's not true. Um, what information do you think should be conveyed to consumers um, from winemakers? What shouldn't be? Um, where's, who does it well? Who does it badly? Oh, well, I think I think wine should have really have an additive list on them. I can't see why not. Um, you know, I think at the moment in Australian wine law, for example, that, it, it, you know, I could be very cynical and say, you know, if, if you don't like the fact of, you know, I, I've seen some data where I think the Australian, uh, the AWRI, the Australian Wine Research Institute, has tried to measure things like residual gelatin or whatever or milk in wines that have been fined. And it's almost at the bottom of the um, detection limits of uh, mass spectroscopy. You know, it's 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 it's, 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 it's it, you know it, it's tiny. So if you're worried about having gelatin or milk in your wines as a, a vegan, then uh, as for the sake that it's in there, that's that's just plainly ridiculous. Although obviously there's an ethical thing, and I, I I'm happy with that. If people you know, if, if they don't want animal products in whatever they're buying, that's fine. There's no issue. My personal belief is that I can't see anything wrong with providing consumers with a bunch of additives um, if they want them. Um, you know, if it, if, I, I don't see any real issue with that as long as it doesn't go nuts. I, I, one thing I learned in Italy uh, with Italians, alcohol is, is like a big issue in wines, that not, not for the sake of, you know, Italians like to have a drink of wine and they don't want it to be too alcoholic. And if you bring an Australian wine over, they go, God almighty, what is this, you know? 
Um, and, and so I think, and I, I remember coming home and saying, this is, this is going to be a big issue. And, you know, I think Australian winemakers are much more, uh, much more aware now of the role of not only alcohol health-wise, but also how it affects the flavour and, and the palates of wines. I mean, there's people now that can, you know, have a machine to take alcohol out of the wine quite legally by not adding water um, or, or not extra water. You know, you, you can take alcohol out and that's a pretty common occurrence. People use it all the time to get their wines into balance. Um, it's a particular viticultural issue we have in Australia where you need to pick right uh, to get the right flavours or, or grapes ripen too quickly so you don't sort of get the attended right flavours but you get a lot of sugar. Um, and so you have to find a way to, to get those ones in balance. And the, the, it's remarkable the difference that it makes. It's, it's quite remarkable the effect of lowering alcohols in wine. It's quite incredible um, what it does. I, until I saw it, I never would have believed it, but it's very effective and it works. So, um, so I, my, go on. No, no, I was going to say, so what, what do you do um, both in the vineyards? I mean, uh, do you, in terms of canopy management, do you, does that help? Or um, I, I know you mentioned picking earlier, but they, then you've got to wait for ripeness. Um, is there anything that you do in the, um, in the, the, the winery that helps keep alcohol lower like do different yeasts get to different levels or will it always pretty much get to the same kind of kind of point well as far as i know yeasts you know all of them have the same biochemical pathway so you'll hear winemakers saying oh it's a high alcohol year or this yeast performs differently i've never actually seen any proof of that at all um i, I you know quite often uh it's usually it usually comes about uh through uh, you know, analysis of the must or the juices, which is which is inaccurate, really, and the potential for alcohol is 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 much higher than you know than what you register. Some people will get samples of red grapes and put them through a, a blender to make sure they extract every every little bit of sugar that's in those berries to make sure that they can get a, a reliable measurement. And and things like BOMO, when people talk about BOMO, BOMO is not a direct correlate. You know, it doesn't give you a direct correlation with uh, final alcohol, uh, it, it's usually about 1.05. If you multiply sort of 14 or 13 BOMA, you'll find that comes out to be, what, 13.6 or something like that. So you can you can go from there. And I think the French, you actually have a formula for red and white grapes, I believe, to, to translate, you know, final alcohols. Um, uh, canopy management, yes. But again, especially in Margaret River, Bob, with things like Cabernet, the last thing you want, uh, and people talk about this, journalists say, oh, just pick a bit greener. Well, you know, it, people hate greenness. They don't like it. You know, uh, they, they just simply don't like it. And there's nothing quite as bad as a, a greenish Margaret River Cabernet or Shiraz or something like that. It just doesn't work. So you're really in a position of having to, you know, pick reasonably right. And and then put it through these machines to take out the other end. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not like a spiral, or you know, that um, that goes round and round. But you have to do it sometimes. Sometimes the food you just don't need to. Do you find um, there's a lot of flavour reduction by using things like spinning cones or anything like that, or uh, do you think they work pretty well? I've never used spinning cone. I've never used it. Uh, if you make a cup of tea, the leaves there would have been probably through a spinning cone machine. 
um, uh, they use it in all sorts of places, but I've never had personal experience in using it uh, on wines. But I, I would have thought uh, that it would be pretty effective, and I, I, I don't know. There's, okay. That's the answer. I, I do not know. But uh, with with uh, with alcohol reduction, um, it's sim- all you're doing is extracting the water out and splitting the water and alcohol out, splitting the alcohol out again, and putting that water back. So you don't, you're not really taking anything out at all. And when you get the eluent that comes out of these machines, it has really no flavor or aroma whatsoever, nothing. It's just alcohol. So it's an interesting process. But that's, that's not to say it's the be-all and end-all. Nobody wants to use those things because it's, it's hellishly expensive and you can't use it on cheaper wines because it just doesn't, you know, just the, the, economic, the economy stuff just, just doesn't work. So I don't want to get the, transmit the idea that you just use this machine as the magic bullet. Um, at all, you know, it's not that at all. Um, I'd have to say that when you have a nice, right vintage in Bordeaux, people crow about it and don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> well, listen, I'm conscious of time, but I just want, there's a couple of bits I want to ask you just before I let you go, if that's okay. Um, so one of them is, you know, obviously you've made wine and sold wine all around the world. What, how do you see world events affecting the wine trade at the moment? So, of, of what wine sales to China from Australia are down, what ninety eight percent or something mental? Obviously, you've got Brexit. There's COVID. I mean, you don't have to answer all it. Just pick one and and go. Well, you know, I'm not Robert Joseph on this stuff, uh, Bob. But uh, <laughs> I look, the sales here of domestic sales have gone nuts, actually, uh, and especially. Um, you know companies that can deliver and you know have a have a bit of have a bit of uh, you know form in that regard naked wines has been very very strong in australia very strong uh, and it's interesting um, I, I, I somebody told I, i'm not sure of the number but somebody told me that uh, you know how many tons of fruit that the china thing represented now uh, i and somebody worked it out to be like 200,000 tonnes out of our whole pick of 1.6 or whatever it is, million tonnes. I don't, I can't, I'm not sure if that's the, that's the, that's the number, but some companies uh, would be very, very affected by this, of course, we could think too. Um, other companies I know that export to China make very little money out of it and say, well, okay, fine, let's, let's look somewhere else. Um, I, I can't really comment on the politics of the whole issue. Um, uh, you know, there's a very interesting article by my friend Warren, and you know, who's quite exposed to the whole thing, and he just uh, takes it on board and is working hard to resolve where he's what he what he's going to do next. You know, it's um, I don't know where it's going to lead. I, but it's a hard question for me, Bob, because I'm more of a production person than a salesperson. But the unexpected thing here in Australia has been the, the takeoff of you know things like home deliveries and especially things like naked wines it's it's been quite phenomenal the you know the feedback you get from people and consumers who who write on the on the naked site to you and talk about wines and you talk to them back and so on and so on and quite quite incredible i i thought the cult of the winemaker was dead but it doesn't seem to be it's um it's it's, it's very strong uh, so i wanted to ask you about um naked a little bit um, from a like production point of view, what are the pros and cons of dealing with a company like Naked? Because it's quite a different business model. It's obviously not right for everyone, <clears throat> but you know your wines are 
you know seem to be doing well and and are obviously well thought of. So how do you how do you find dealing with them um, more from a, a production rather than business point of view? But either, however you wanted to to look at it. Well, uh, they say this is when we need the wine, and you say okay, and then they say can we have it a week earlier? And you say yep, and so on and so on. But I find them really good to deal with because they have uh, you know they have uh, how would I say they're clear cut about the nature of the wine that they're selling and when it needs to be released and uh, and so on in terms of maybe a bit of bottle age and so on or barrel age and so on and so on and I think you know like any company they're exposed to the same issues as everybody else it's price versus quality uh, you know and and you have to deliver and we've been working really hard in Naked to try and lift lift the quality. And I'm just being totally honest here, to lift it as best we can, uh, given the cost constraints that like every wine has. And that that pays off by people liking your wine. That that's what it is. And you, you sell more bottles. Um, I found them terrific to deal with actually. Uh, really, really good. Good people. Um, I don't I don't know about the other winemakers particularly, I, I don't see them that often. Um, I'm sort of, I'm sort of like, I, I think I was, I, I was there at the opening. I, I think they brought me along, like, the, you know, the old man of the sea type thing or something. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> I was like the Ernest Hemingway or something. But anyway, I think I'm the oldest winemaker in the group. But um, it's a fantasy. But um, no, I found them terrific. And I think you know, everybody says, oh, it's just direct marketing. Well, the difference with Naked is that. People talk to you, they like it, they like to know things. And I think the main thing is if you're completely honest with them, uh, that, that, you know, that is, that is the best thing of all. People like honesty. They don't like, they don't like to be shoveled stuff. They like to, you to talk about what you're doing, just as, as such as what you were doing in this interview is sort of asking me a, a few questions. Uh, and I'm being um, as honest as I dare. Um, and, 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 and tell them, I'll have a few drinks and get on Twitter tonight and go for it, Bob. I'll be yeah, away. Don't worry. Uh, I'll keep <laughs> watching. <on the> side. <laughs> um, but look, uh, currently I'm actually in Derby in Western Australia, um, right up the North and it's raining. It's been raining for three days and, uh, my wife works in indigenous arts up here. So I've come up for a couple of weeks and, uh, we're about to get a cyclone sometime tomorrow so we'll see what happens so anyway well good luck <laughs> yeah no um but look I, I find naked a really interesting idea i it seems to work really well in australia um i don't know how it's going in the uk but i i i remember them telling me it was popular in the united kingdom because uh the brits like clubs and so on you know they like that sort of thing it's um you know they like to be part of clubs and groups and so on and I, i'm not sure how well it's gone in america because i don't i'm, I'm not sure there's that same sort of social glue uh, maybe i don't know but in australia it's been very strong you know it's just another way to sell wine and it's a it's a good way and it you know it's effective in telling people stuff you know you don't you don't have to listen to a journalist you can listen to a winemaker uh and so on. So people like that. It's not to say one's better than the other, but that's just the way they've done it. And uh, the guy who thought it up. Oh, lost you again, I think. It's starting to pour here now, mate. It's absolutely. 
Now, Joy, if it's starting to really pour with rain, I think um, let's let you get inside because it's been, what, nearly an hour already. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But um, yeah, there's loads more I might ask you <laughs> as a follow up. Who knows? Um, but I'll drop, you, I'll drop you a line if that's the case. Be my pleasure, Bob. I hope it uh, helps you in your, your quest for, for whatever. Um, yeah, this is, um, an, this is a brilliant load of examples for, for people, I think, in this one. So yeah, thank you so much for your time. And it's been a real, real honor talking to you. Oh, no, don't. You know, Bob, you know, people think that you're a winemaker. They come up to you and say, oh, you're a winemaker. And you say, yeah. And they and you say, well, what did you do? Oh, I, I did a halo jump, you know, over Vietnam in the 70s out of a C-130. And then I went to the submarine service or did something else, you know. I mean, people, I don't know what they think about winemakers, but it's, it's you know, it's a, not, it's a good profession, Uh you know, there's all sorts of people in the world that we just want to know. You know, people have interesting lives, and uh, I, I love to talk to people because uh, um, to hear, you know, what they've done and what they do, and so on and so on. I must say, one thing I must say, I'd, I'd love to get to London again because it is absolutely the center of the wine world. You know, there's some people there. You know, you need a specialist about Alsace or somewhere or whatever. You know, there'll be a man, there'll be a man who's the specialist, you know. Mm-hmm. and uh that that's you know i haven't been there for years but that's the thing i do enjoy about that culture over there is is just uh you know that the incredible knowledgeable people mws whatever um or just just interested professionals who know the industry you know so well i, I love that um i wish i could be there actually but anyway i hope uh, you're safe i hope it all goes well for you bob yeah yeah, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, it'd be um, it'd be nice to actually meet you if, <laughs> once we can do trade tastings in London again. <laughs> right, Bob. Cheers, cool. mate. Thank you so much, Brian. That was uh, that was brilliant. Okay. Cheers, mate.